Welcome back to another episode of Naked Neuroscience, the podcast exploring the workings of the brain and the nervous system in our bodies and beyond. I'm Katie Haler, and this month... They can say to themselves, I'm trying to stop smoking. Or they can say to themselves, I'm a non-smoker now. That's just not what I do. And it turns out that the people who say that second thing, I'm a non-smoker now, they're drawing on their sense of identity, who they are as a person, and that strengthens their resolve, and they're much less likely to go back to smoking than the people who say, I'm trying to stop smoking. We're returning to the subject of behaviour, asking experts what's involved in rolling out behaviour change for the healthier. Plus, we're plucking out a couple of papers from the latest neuroscience research with the help of some local experts. So let's jump straight into some naked neuroscience news. Joining me this month, Duncan Assel, a cognitive neuroscientist from Cambridge University, and Helen Keyes, a perceptual psychologist from Anglia Ruskin University. First up, Helen looked at a paper about whether how much sleep you get can affect how you experience physical pain the next day. It was really interesting. They got 25 participants into the lab and established everybody's baseline sensitivity to thermal pain by attaching a little uh, pad to your leg and asking you when things were painfully hot. Then these 25 people went through enforced waking where they were kept awake doing pleasant things in the lab for eight hours. Um, And then the next morning at 8.30am they were put in an fMRI scanner and their pain thresholds were again measured with those same stimuli. Um, Now those same 25 people came back on a separate occasion when they'd had a full night's sleep in the lab, put in the fMRI scanner again and again their pain uh, sensitivity thresholds were measured. So what did they find then? They found that following acute sleep deprivation, two things happened in the brain that made you experience pain more. So first of all, the part of the brain that responds to touch and pain, the somatosensory cortex, activity there um, increased following acute sleep deprivation. And secondly, the part of the brain that's involved in decision making, so the striatum and the insular cortex, this part of the brain usually modulates pain responses and tells your brain, don't worry about this pain. Responses there were blunted, so it didn't respond so much after acute sleep deprivation. So the brain was literally more sensitive to what may have been pain that wasn't such a big deal before? Absolutely. In those two ways, it responded more to the pain and the bits that would dampen the pain stopped responding. So what are the implications of this then? Because lack of sleep, even mildly so, can be very, very common in everyday life. Absolutely. And the follow-up study they did where they did an online study asking people about their everyday sleeping patterns using a sleep diary and their experiences of pain in the subsequent days showed exactly that, that even minor changes to your sleeping patterns led to a greater experience of pain the subsequent days. Okay, so bottom line, what should someone take away from this? Medical practitioners might be interested to see that actually a prescription of sleep might be quite helpful to patients who are in a lot of pain. But also our everyday habits, if we're feeling quite down and quite stressed and quite in pain with things, 
we might be able to think back on our own lives and see whether the night before we've had enough sleep and that could be contributing to our pain. Perhaps take sleep a bit more seriously. Absolutely. Helen Keyes there. And Duncan Assel has been delving into a paper about how memories of life events link to vulnerability to depression. They followed a sample of 427 adolescents who were at elevated risk of developing depression. And they followed them over a year. And at the start of the year, they asked all the subjects to perform an autobiographical memory test. So subjects are given keywords, and they have to use those to generate memories from their own kind of personal history. And they also assessed symptoms of depression. The subjects were all seen again at the end of the year, and they measured the same things, and they also measured cortisol. So cortisol is a hormone, so it's a way of measuring stress response in these people. Those who were better able to recall positive memories at the start of the year, at the end of the year, they had reduced symptoms of depression and reduced levels of cortisol, so we think reduced stress. The theory that the authors have is that being able to better recall positive memories helps buffer the response to stress. And that's why you have reduced cortisol levels a year later and reduced symptoms of depression. And they were able to test that by comparing these relationships in people who had experienced at least one stressful life event during that year versus those who hadn't. And these relationships were strongest in those who had experienced a stressful life event. So the positive memories became beneficial in those who had experienced a stressful life event. Do you know if this would work for people who actually haven't had a particularly stressful life relative to people who have? There's no harm in trying. So the data show that it's most effective in those who have experienced stress. Now, of course, the thing is, you don't know when you're going to experience a stressful life event. So the implication is that by getting practiced at recalling more positive memories, you are gradually making yourself more resilient to future stresses that could be just around the corner. So could this be used in a clinical or psychological setting? Well, new treatments for depression are sorely needed. And this study implicates autobiographical memory as a potential target for therapies that aim to reduce responses to stress and symptoms of depression. And actually, there are other groups here in Cambridge who are working to develop new interventions that target autobiographical memory and try and train people to get better at being more flexible and being more positive in their memory recollection with the aim that that might help reduce symptoms of depression. Okay, and key points to take away from this study, what would you say? It's really important that we practice and become proficient at recalling positive experiences that have happened to us and that doing that is a really important part of making ourselves resilient to stressful experiences that we may encounter in the future. Hear, hear. Duncan Assel there. And if you want to read up on those stories in more detail, you can find the links on the Naked Scientist website, nakedscientist.com slash neuroscience. And if there's some neuroscience news you want us to look at or you've got a question you'd like us to address, get in touch. You can email neuroscience at nakedscientists.com. Got a biological brain buster or a chemical query? Ask the Naked Scientists. I just wanted to know about sleep paralysis. Is it a disorder or condition and can it be cured? How much energy is in moonlight? And could solar panel technology be used to capture this energy? When you cook food with any alcohol, 
How much, if any, percentage of the alcohol stays behind? Every Friday, the Naked Scientist and Cape Talk unravel the science behind those weird and wonderful questions you've always wanted to ask. Download and listen for free at thenakedscientist.com slash ask or simply search and subscribe to Ask the Naked Scientist on your favourite podcast app. Last month, I went along to the Rosenthal Symposium, a conference organised by the UK Academy of Medical Sciences and the US National Academy of Medicine, where behaviour and neuroscience experts from around the world met to share their work on how we can change health-related behaviours for the better. Last time on the show, we honed in on the neuroscience around specific health behaviours like eating, smoking and drinking. And in this episode, I want to find out how you actually implement behaviour change. Firstly, on a personal level, Paul Aveyard is a family doctor and behavioural medicine expert at Oxford University, whose job it is to help patients change their behaviour around smoking and eating. I asked Paul, since the modern world is full of messages about the risks of smoking and overeating, how much of a challenge is it to encourage people to change their ways? It's one of the barriers that sometimes doctors feel that, you know, look, I'm just preaching to people who already know what they ought to do and just don't want to do it. But actually, that's not true. A lot of people, at least to me as a doctor, express a desire to do something about it. And the knack, if you like, is to offer people some practical way forward that they can take action, preferably there and then, to do something about it. If you can move the conversation into that area, then you're likely to make progress with your patients. So is that the difference between saying, take this leaflet, you can go away and look at some links, and I could sign you up for a weight loss course right now? Yeah. Usually... It works much better if you can make that action not dependent on their initiative. After all, stuff gets in the way. We all have busy lives. A lot of people just have a feeling, I could perfectly well stop smoking, lose weight, do whatever it is that the doctor's been asking me to do by myself. But actually, the lesson is that we know that these programs help people, but they don't always appreciate the value that they hold. So taking action to put that program in the way of people when you have the opportunity is a really important part of uh, our work. Okay, so perhaps effort or a bit of cognitive effort to go online and book that course or whatever it is, is one barrier. Mm. What other barriers are there to people adopting the healthy behaviours they might very well know is the best thing to do? Well, they're all the sort of barriers that, you know, we've all faced when we've made our New Year's resolutions, right? One of these won't matter, and then before we know it, one becomes two, becomes more. So all of these and the environment around us constrains our ability to make changes. But just because those barriers are there doesn't mean that you shouldn't try. There are lots of examples where if people can be put in the way of effective programs. They will make progress and move forward. We have good evidence that these very brief interventions that I was talking about, that doctors can make, do prompt people to make changes. Most people don't succeed in the long term, but enough do to mean that it's not only cost uh, effective, but actually cost saving. So in terms of what your research has informed works, signing up to, for instance, a a weight management programme. Can the same thing be said of smoking? 
Yes, it can. We know that, for example, if people were to leave a consultation with medication, like nicotine replacement or like tablet treatments that we have, or be referred to a stop smoking clinic, well, those are the best things that they can do to give themselves to maximise the chance. So our task as a nation, really, is to get more people to try to make changes in the first place and to get more people to use an effective means to help them change their behaviour in the second place, if you like. And there are a variety of tools that we can do to use that. A very key one is what your doctor says to you when you go and see them. When people are thinking health, that prompts the self-regulatory part of their brain to be more active and that means that they're much more likely to want to take action on the doctor's advice at that moment than if they were just caught cold with advice to stop smoking. All right so we're actually using neuroscience to capitalize on people's behavior to help them change it. Yep. You mentioned seizing the moment. Mm. Are there any other particularly successful case studies that we can use and learn from? What helps people is to have very simple rules about what they can and can't do. After all, changing your behaviour is in some ways a bit of a boring task. You've got to take something you like doing and not do it, or at least not do it half as much as you might like to. If you can keep a very clear rule for yourselves about what you will and won't do, you are more likely to be successful. So let me give you an example. People who are stopping smoking, they can say to themselves, I'm trying to stop smoking. Right? Or they can say to themselves, I'm a non-smoker now. That's just not what I do. And it turns out that the people who say that second thing, I'm a non-smoker now, they're drawing on their sense of identity, who they are as a person, and that strengthens their resolve, and they're much less likely to go back to smoking than the people who say, I'm trying to stop smoking. Another example is the not-a-puff rule that we have in smoking, which is simply that once you pass this day called the quit day, your absolute golden rule is do not smoke at all. And again, that relates to the neuroscience and the sort of neurobiology, if you like, of learning and addiction and the extinction that occurs as a result of sort of not smoking. Gradually, the drive to smoke will lessen. It's sort of anti-Pavlovian learning that's going on there. We know that these simple rules help bolster people's resistance to temptation. We see that in weight loss interventions as well, where things like meal replacement programs, it's a very simple rule, eat that, don't eat anything else. It turns out to be easier to adhere to that kind of rule than, oh, here's the kinds of foods that you ought to be eating. You'd think the latter would be more sustainable and better in the long term, but the reverse is true. And indeed, that can lead on to sort of effective population strategies. So Tesco's or any other big supermarket could perfectly well produce, and to some extent they do produce, calorie-controlled meal replacement program. It's actual real food that's already packaged. You know, this is your breakfast, this is your lunch, this is your dinner. You could imagine that there was a commercial opportunity for them to produce a kind of whole program that gives people a rotating interesting diet but nonetheless actually is lower in energy than they might otherwise have and because it all comes as just eat this it's actually an easier diet to stick to than the sort of usual approach where you're left to try to make healthy choices. Is it 
palatable though, and I don't mean the food, I mean the idea of being told what to do, because some of us aren't very good at that. I think one of our principles that we started the day with here was that the overwhelmingly big breakthrough is there is no single breakthrough. And there's there's certainly no single way for a person to lose weight. The best way, as we always say, is the way that you feel you can stick to. But on average, this is what the research evidence is showing, that these meal replacement programs, which are currently provided by diet companies, those are more effective than the sort of educating you about your food way. But that doesn't mean that that's true of everyone, of course. Paul Aveyard there. Now, it's one thing to change an individual's behaviour, but what about changing that of a whole population? Martin White leads research at Cambridge University looking at diet and health, specifically about how to change diets of a whole population. First things first, I asked Martin, when I'm hungry for my lunch, what factors are actually going into my decision about what to eat? One of the key things is that in the environment in which we exist, there are lots of cues that, that influence our behaviours. You know, if you come out of your office and you're walking down a high street or something, thinking, what shall I have for lunch? There are lots of cues there that are saying to you, come into my store, come and buy my food. Marketing, advertising, the presence of different kinds of outlets. Um, The price point will be an important consideration. You might have a budget in mind for your lunch. Cultural factors as well. So you may have grown up with a particular diet. Uh, You may come from a particular culture. Or there may be just things that you like and things that you don't like. But there are literally, you know, hundreds of different factors that affect us. But the environmental cues are really important. There are already some behavioural interventions from a population level things like the five-a-day campaign, I guess, would be one. Can you give me a few more examples of ones that currently exist in the UK? As a national level, Public Health England has um, a range of things. So uh, quite a lot of them are kind of those kind of marketing campaigns like five-a-day that you mentioned, um, the Change for Life campaign and so on. Well, that's about conveying information, essentially. Then they're involved in other activities that are more aimed at changing the food environment. There's a lot of activity within Public Health England at the moment working with the commercial food sector to see whether they can change the kind of foods that are available, reducing portion sizes, reducing sugar content, reducing total number of calories and so on. So that's some of the work that's going kind of going on in the background. Another approach which is gaining some traction now is regulation. In 2018 we had introduced in in the UK the first fiscal measure in relation to food. So the soft drinks industry levy, which is a levy on manufacturers and importers on sugary drinks, charging manufacturers a small amount for each litre of soft drink that they sell or import that contains high amounts of sugar. It's actually a two-tier levy. Is this the sugar tax? The sugar, what's called the sugar tax, yeah. And the purpose of it was to persuade manufacturers to take sugar out of their drinks, to reduce the sugar content so as to avoid paying the levy. So that's an example of a a regulatory measure, and it's the first of a number that I think we'll see in the UK in the future. The Childhood Obesity Plan, which was published in June 2018, includes uh, half a dozen or more different regulatory measures that involve things like restricting advertising, encouraging labelling within uh, the food industry and so on. You're assuming that that is going to be accessible to people, I guess. People need to be able to access that information, it needs to be in the right language, they need to be able to read, so on and so forth. How accessible are current measures to encourage people to be healthier when it comes to food? Yes, that's a very good question. And these interventions differ in terms of the extent to which they require active engagement of the individual for the intervention to work. And that's really important because 
The more active engagement an intervention requires, the less likely it is to be effective. In particular, in people who have difficulty engaging with that kind of intervention. So, for example, you mentioned food labels. For people to really interact with nutritional labels, they need to be literate. They also need to be numerate. And then they have to start making choices based on that information. Those characteristics are are patterned socioeconomically within the population. So poorer people are the most likely to have problems with literacy and so on. It is really important. And in our research, we've come to the conclusion that government needs to focus much more on what we call low agency interventions. So ones that don't require the individual to make these conscious choices. The thing is, most of us know we're eating too much. Despite knowing this, we still hear about this looming obesity crisis. So just knowing isn't enough. What's going wrong? You have to think about this as a system level problem. The most convincing explanation of the obesity crisis is that we have a a system that is delivering too many calories to the population. That system is the commercial food system. This is quite a big challenge because we're used to developing interventions that are aimed at persuading individuals to change their behaviour. But the behaviour we need to change here is that of the food industry. That's why the soft drinks industry levy is so well designed and so powerful because it's really aimed at changing behaviour within the commercial sector. From the research that you've done, what kinds of strategies work when it comes to introducing effective behaviour change for the maximum amount of people? At the moment, we're busy evaluating the soft drinks industry levy. We haven't published any results yet, but the results are looking very promising. So I think that kind of fiscal policy is going to be very effective. There's a range of other things we can do, and I think that what we'll need is a whole range of different measures in order to actually make a real difference to obesity. There's talk of further restrictions on advertising of unhealthy foods, pushing those beyond 9pm, what's called the 9pm watershed. There's talk of restrictions on the online advertising of foods. What we've seen is a dramatic rise in the online advertising of foods, alcohol, gambling and so on. Um, The digital space is an entirely new space for marketing unhealthy commodities. And then there's there's other kind of measures as well, other sorts of policy measures which can be helpful. Um, We've had a series of regulations introduced in the UK about um, school food. And um, I've been involved in evaluating those um, Uh, over the last 10 years what we find is that when you regulate the food that can be presented at a school lunch the lunches become healthier so when you introduce nutritional and food standards that has a good impact and one of the interesting things we found is that it doesn't just have an impact on what kids eat at lunchtime but it also has an impact on their total food consumption across the whole 24 hours so I'm guessing having interventions where effectively people don't really need to change their behavior that much maybe that's the best option Yeah, it's more about whether people have to make these very conscious choices and and it requires some kind of effort to make that choice. But yeah, if you can eliminate the choice element, then um, that's the most effective way to go. And that's exactly the principle of the soft drinks industry levy. It it takes the decision out of ordinary people's hands and um, it it just means that what's available on the shelves has less sugar in it. Simple. Simple (laughs) and a good thing. Individuals will always be responsible for their own choices. Um, People will still make choices and there still will be lots of choices to make out there. Um, But the important point is that the research shows that if we can make the environments healthier, um, then it makes those choices easier. In other words, the healthier choices become the obvious and easier choices. Martin White. Now, whether it's one or one million people, changing behaviour, it seems, is no easy thing. And adding mental health problems into the mix presents further challenges. 
Barbara Sahakian is a cognitive neuroscientist at Cambridge University who's interested in improving cognition and motivation in people with neuropsychiatric disorders and brain injuries, as these can affect the way people behave. First up, I asked Barbara to explain what actually is cognition and how does this relate to our behaviour? Cognition is really all about the way that you think, of course. And your thinking affects your behavior because what you decide to do or not do will affect what you actually act on and do and choose in different situations. So cognition is extremely important and we need to keep our cognition and also our well-being at very high levels throughout our whole life course. So part of what I'm very interested in is how can we promote good cognition and well-being. So from a neuroscience perspective, behavior change requires motivation and top-down cognitive control by prefrontal cortex, which stops you engaging in maladaptive or harmful behaviors. Okay, so the prefrontal cortex is a specific, quite special part of the brain, right? There's a lot that goes on there. And it's very well developed in humans, and that helps us with our decision-making. It also helps us to deal with novel situations. And this top-down processing that you mentioned, what is that? The motivation is kind of the reward. When you want behaviour change, it's helpful to motivate people. You know, rewards and things like that actually get people interested in doing something. And we know that very well with children, but also with adults. Different rewards make you want to engage in different activities and promote uh, good health and things like that. And that's part of what I call our hot cognition. But we also sometimes have a, a sort of stop. We all know that when you go out with your friends and you're drinking, if you're gonna drive, you decide, oh, I'll have a non-alcoholic drink. That is really your dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex and other areas of your frontal cortex helping you to make a good decision for that behavior that I'm not going to take that drink of alcohol because I know I'm going to drive later on. It's like you've got the accelerator pedal and then the brake pedal and it's a constant kind of switching between the two. Is that an accurate analogy? Quite a good one, actually. It's not quite simple because there are all these individual differences that people have in terms of their genetics, for instance, for risky behavior and things like that. But basically, the brain often works in that way, that we have the promotion mechanisms and then we have the stopping mechanisms. And they're really to get us at the optimal level of our behavior so that we can function as best as possible in an environment that's changing all the time. And so that's why it's so important that we have both the motivation to you know pay attention to the relevant things and do the right behavior but also that we have stopping mechanisms that will make us reflect on well is this really a good idea and how will I feel about this tomorrow and that kind of thing looking ahead planning and things like that we also have to think about that when we're making decisions. How does this relate to conditions that you study? Well, the easiest way to explain it probably is in terms of substance abuse. So frequently people may impulsively try substances of abuse 
They find it very pleasurable, perhaps, and they start using them recreationally. And then eventually they start using it habitually. So they're really driven to use these substances, but the brake isn't working so well. So the top-down cognitive control to stop them uh, doing this behavior is, is not really as strong as it should be. That's why it's very good to intervene very early when people are able to uh, modify their behavior so that they don't get addicted or they don't end up in a compulsive mode of trying to seek drugs of abuse. And does this same system work for other public health challenges like obesity or smoking cessation? Some people actually call these behavioral addictions. A lot of these things do fall into the compulsivity range. Not all forms of obesity do, but there are some people who are more or less compulsive eaters, and that would sort of fall under the behavioral addictions. It's still an area of controversy whether behavioral addictions really are addictions or not, but the same form of compulsivity may happen. And so gambling is another one of these things where people start to do it and it might be, you know, harmless and they're enjoying it and so forth, but later they feel compelled to do it and actually it's causing a lot of harm, but they can't stop. So it's that type of thing. You need the stopping mechanism and it's good to have a good reward system because we do need to be motivated to go do our jobs and other things like that to do difficult things that we may need to do. We need to feel uh, motivation, so it's good to keep our motivation up. And we know that in certain patient groups, say, for instance, people with schizophrenia who have problems in motivation, it's very hard for them to want to do things. So that system's very important too, but we have to keep it under control so that we're enjoying ourselves, but we're not causing ourselves any harm or other people any harm and disadvantage. So bearing in mind the motivation and control, what does your research suggest we can do to help people who might be suffering from psychiatric disorders? At the moment, what I'm doing is a lot of work on cognitive training. Now, cognitive training has been shown to improve cognition. As you train, you can see that it's strengthening certain neural networks in the brain. But the problem is that at the moment, usually you have to come into a hospital, so it might be expensive. You might need a specialist to help you train. And a lot of the patients who are training, say patients with schizophrenia or patients with mild cognitive impairment, which is a very early stage of all Alzheimer's disease, find it rather tedious, so they don't really want to do it. And some of the studies with cognitive training, unfortunately, the dropout rates can be as high as 40%. So what I've done in my work is to think about, well, how can we cognitively train people and get them to do this work, but really enjoy it and have it engaging? And also, I want to individualize it because people have different levels of cognitive ability, and we want to make sure that they're progressing in their own program, a bit like a brain gym where you have your own personal trainer. So what I've done is to work with a games developer in my laboratory, Tom Piercy. We've developed these games which are based around neuropsychological and neuroevidence and we've tested them in people with mild cognitive impairment. These are elderly people in their 70s and we've also used a different game called Wizard which is for people with schizophrenia but also for healthy people at the more challenging levels and we find that these games, they really enjoy doing them and they improve their cognitive function. They improve their episodic memory which is the everyday memory that we use. So when we're you know, trying to remember where we left our mobile phone in the house 
or we're trying to remember where we left our car in a multi-story car park. That's episodic memory. It's the first memory to go in Alzheimer's disease. And both in Alzheimer's disease and schizophrenia, episodic memory has been shown to link to functional outcome. You know, how well can you do at your job? How well can you function around your house? How well do you engage in different activities? So it's how you behave. It's your activities of daily living, which is how you're behaving in your normal environment. So that's a really good way to get this generalized behavior change because this kind of cognition is so closely linked to our everyday activities. What about going beyond the groups of people who specifically suffer with psychiatric disorders? Can this gamification of brain training, can it be used for the average Joe? Absolutely. So we've just been working on a game called Decoder A lot of people have come to me and they've said, I'm having trouble, I'm getting distracted all the time at work. The way that we work these days where we're checking our texts, we're checking our emails, we've got multitasking to do. Sometimes you come home at the end of the day and people say to themselves, well, I've been busy all day, but I don't seem to have achieved my goals. I haven't got any one thing completely done. So this is really to help you focus your attention, stay with a big challenging job, and then you'll have your goal completed. With these games that you've designed, is the prescription, as it were, for long-term use? Or can you work really hard with your game, your cognition improves, and then you're all set? I think it will have some carryover. That's really what you're saying, like how long does it last? And we haven't really studied that very carefully, so I can't really say for sure. But it's really meant to be something that you do all the time. It's like you wouldn't stop going to the gym and expect your physical health and all the gains that you got from working in the gym to carry on forever. It's something that you have to keep doing on a regular basis, and that's really what the games are meant for. They strengthen a neurocircuitry in the brain, and it's a kind of use it or lose it and the idea is that you should be boosting it every now and then and trying to get even better I mean cognitive enhancement is something we should be trying to do the more we can do it the better we can uh, boost our cognition and boost our well-being the better off we'll be Barbara Sahaki in there and Barbara and her colleagues have recently published a paper on the decoder game she mentioned you can find it in the journal frontiers in neuroscience Thank you very much to Barbara Zahakian there, Martin White and Paul Aviard, and also to Duncan Assel and Helen Keyes for joining us this month. Do join us next month for more Naked Neuroscience. And in the meantime, you can get in touch via email. It's neuroscience at nakedscientist.com. And if there's a particular working of the mind that you'd like to hear about, let us know. I'm Katie Haler from the Naked Scientist team. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.